This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theology education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next steps in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are excited, as always, for you to join the conversation with us each week. Each week, we have over 40,000 people touching the podcast with iTunes and SoundCloud and social media and the various dot-coms that the episode is posted. But we will also want to invite you to join the conversation in a new way. We want you to join this CBF podcast listener support project. And you actually get to join me in an upcoming interview. Imagine this year alone, Walter Brueggemann, Philip Yancey, Brian McLaren, Jim Wallace, Margaret Feinbaum, Ruth Haley Barton, and Miroslav Volf. Yeah, imagine yourself joining an interview. So visit cbf.net backslash podcast support. This week's CBF Podcast Conversation is brought to you by CBF Advocacy. CBF Advocacy is excited to announce two advocacy and action opportunities in 2020. Advocacy in Action will be returning to Washington, D.C. on March 9th through the 12th, 2020, after a wonderful event in New York City. CBF's Advocacy's annual event will include popular staples such as participation meetings with congressional offices and opportunities to hear about advocacy efforts with CBF partners in Washington. In 2020, Advocacy in Action will include more experiential opportunities, including a special tour at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Registration for this event will be capped at 60 and opens September the 30th, 2019. Visit cbf.net backslash advocacy and action for more information about housing options, registration, and event details. For the first time ever, CBF's Advocacy is happy to announce a regional Advocacy and Action event in conjunction with CBF Heartland. Advocacy and Action Heartland will be February the 8th through the 10th, 2020 in Jefferson City, Missouri, co-hosted by CBF Heartland, First Baptist Jefferson City, CBF, and Word and Way. 
with a focus on equipping individuals to advocate for their state and local governments and finding alternatives to payday loans, Advocacy and Action Heartland promises to be an event you won't want to miss. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Caitlin Curtis. Caitlin is the author of Glory Happening, as well as a contributing writer for Sojourners, Relevant Magazine, and several other publications. Caitlin, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Now, over the last few years, your words and your work have been rising among many post-evangelicals. I wonder if you'll uh, take us back to the beginning of this calling you're now living into. Yeah, so um, I've always been a writer. I've always loved um, writing, and it's really interesting because um, for a long time, my writing uh, was through music. So I, you know, I I play guitar. I was a worship leader for a while, and so I wrote songs. And I never thought about writing a book or writing really like uh, for online publications. That was never something that I really actively thought about. Um, and when my first son was born, um, I started a blog. You know, so I just needed a place to sort of process. And so it was just a spirituality blog. I named it Stories. And so it was all you know through storytelling, through stories about my life and. I had that for a few years, um, and then I decided to um, try and write a book. And so I had all these stories, and, you know, I felt like they all went together somehow. And so I um, submitted it to a publisher, and they took it. And that was my first book, Glory Happening. And so ever since then, um, things have just been kind of building from there. And then I became a public speaker, and so I not long after that book came out, I, I started traveling and speaking. And um, yeah, so it's just over the last few years, it's been kind of a, a steady, um, steady journey of just jumping in and doing it, you know, and um, writing for Sojourners has just been amazing as a way to um, have that extra, you know, place online to share my words and my journey. I mean, going from writing from a a personal blog to to writing to sojourners um, is is a huge jump. So you know what was what was the most exciting thing about that transition to to maybe go from writing about your personal life to kind of you know writing and and being a voice for for so many people. Yeah, um, it's it's amazing and really intimidating actually. You know because there is the pressure, and for me it's the pressure of you know wanting to do well by the people who read my words. I think it's it's really important that when we have people following us, you know, that we, um, that we are careful with the way that we do things, you know, and I want to, um, the hard thing about, you know, I write about things like colonization and the history of America and truth telling and, you know, religion and, and those things that can all be really difficult to write about. And so um, I've just, you know, and jumping in and having that journey kind of be, like you said, from my, my personal blog to, sojourners and writing a book, um, having it be kind of such a fast journey has, um, I've just had to really trust um, the way that I'm doing things and trust the audience with my words, you know, and I've been really surprised at how many people I think want to have these conversations. Um, you know, a lot of them don't, but the ones that do, you know, we're entering into these spaces together and having really good conversations. And I'm really grateful that, you know, I get to be a part of that. So. Well, there's a, a kind of a sense of vulnerability and transparency when your words are out there. You know, I think about the growth and development as a writer, but 
you know, the growth and development for me on, on preaching, there's a lot of early sermons that I, I keep all my manuscripts and I look back and I'm like, what was I thinking? This is awful. And I can't imagine what it was like for the people to, to listen to it, you know? And so, you know, there's, you, you write, you know, you kind of, you put yourself out there when you're writing and I think you do it with such, uh, such power and such grace. Now, I know a good, a good bit of your story, um, is, uh, you're a member of, uh, and I know I'm going to mispronounce this. It is at the, um, Pato, Potawamanti, um, citizen band nation. Is that uh, correct me on that? Yeah, Potawatomi. Yeah. So tell us, tell us more about your people and, and how that shapes your work. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation, um, and uh, we um, are from the Great Lakes region of the United States. So that's kind of where, where we are, and we, um, the name of our tribe uh, means the people of the place of fire. And so um, traditionally, when we um, lived there, uh, pre uh, colonization, we um, were people who tended to the fires. So we had, you know, ceremonial fires, ceremony, and these, um, you know, we have these, um, I wouldn't call them rituals. We, you know, I just stick to ceremony, but we have, you know, a fire is a really important part of um, different feasts or different things like that. And so we were the people who tended to the fires. And for me today, that's even a really powerful metaphor, um, tending to my fire, tending to the fire of, um, my people or whatever it means, you know, um, trying to keep that fire alive. So as a writer, that image of a fire burning is really powerful for me personally. Um, um, I am what I, what a lot of people would call reconnecting with my tribe. So when I was nine, um, my father and my mother got divorced. And so um, a lot of um, my identity, I guess it was shaped by being Potawatomi. Um, didn't continue to develop. And so I um, didn't learn a lot about our tribe or about being Potawatomi or being Native or being Indigenous or, you know, kind of being able to explore my identity. And so doing that as an adult now, you know, and as I was already deconstructing my Baptist upbringing, that part of also asking, you know, who am I as an Indigenous woman, that all just kind of came together, you know, and asking those questions, I'm asking, well, wait, if I've always known I'm Potawatomi, what actually does that mean, you know, and, and what does it mean for my own children? And so um, that's been a journey that I've been on um, now. And since I am a writer, you know, that's just how it comes out is through this journey of writing these stories and trying to understand uh, how, how to be a Christian, um, what that means, you know, what does it mean to believe in mystery or be spiritual, you know, and what does it mean to have these different identities and how do they not go together well and how do they go together well? So it's, it's complicated and I think it's a lot of gray area for me. I live in a lot of uh, liminal space is what I call it. So. Well, certainly I'm, I'm part of your story is, uh, as you said, it comes out in your written work and you've written a good bit on Christian colonization. You recently wrote, while I believe decolonizing is a collective work, it is a deep personal, spiritual, mental, emotional, and intimate work that all we have to do is to take on for ourselves as well. We know that there are collective answers to decolonization systems around us, specifically systems that oppress and repress. Um, but what does a shared vision of decolonization mean for all of us from so many different backgrounds? 
I wonder mm-hmm. for, for someone who's, who's not familiar with this terminology, tell them what you mean by this. Yeah. So there are more, um, there are broader um, terms and in more um, systematic terms of decolonization. So if you're an academic or maybe a historian, there are very specific terms of decolonization about what that would mean, you know, like um, where you're talking about like states um, or governments, um, you know, a, a settlement being, you know, like separating itself from the larger um, whatever ruling entity, <laughs> things like that, that are much more like systematic, if that makes sense. Um, and what I'm talking about is is that, but also like the very personal work of decolonizing. So even, you know, throughout the holidays, I'm asking people, you know, I believe that um, choosing to see that consumerism is a problem, you know, and choosing to do something different than just buying a bunch of stuff for no reason. You know, like how how can we, how is decolonizing attached to the way that we view capitalism or the way that we view oppression or poverty you know like there are so many um, systems that have been created in America and so you know for American we're looking at it here our histories and and truth telling but we can do this in any country no matter where you live you're you're looking at who are the oppressed and how does my story overlap with their story and so as an indigenous person, but I'm, I'm mixed, so I'm also white. So in, in all of my identity, what does it mean for, for me to decolonize? It means that I have to face even my own um, white privilege and I have to own that and, and look at it, you know, and, and um, consider it in everything that I do. But I also have to own um, who I am as an indigenous woman and who I am as a Potawatomi person and ask what that means for my family, like learning our language of our tribe and teaching that to my kids, you know, to me, that is decolonizing, um, considering the Bible in a different way or fighting against um, anti-Semitism that's been taught using the Bible for so long, especially growing up Southern Baptist, um, things like that. I, I believe that those things are decolonizing, you know, um, and so it is deeply personal work, but then it's also, like you read from my piece, it's connecting back to these systems, you know, but I think that if we change ourselves, and if we understand our personal lives and how they affect the lives of others, then we're, you know, we're going to then enter into conversations with each other and we're going to build communities that are willing to decolonize, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to the concept um, as you, you wrote about. Um, walk us through the, the personal and spiritual and emotional aspects of decolonization. Yeah. Well, Let's just start with um, maybe something like just telling the truth about our history. So, in say an like maybe an everyday person who, let's just say an everyday person who loves um, doing the tomahawk chop at a Braves game. <laughs> so that's a a personal thing in Atlanta. Um, say that, you know, there's someone who loves doing that and they've never thought of it as being wrong. You know, it's always been like, this is something that honors Native Americans, right? That's kind of the, the story. Um, and if you're faced with a history or faced with an Indigenous person saying to you, hey, this, this actually doesn't honor us, but it's, um, it represents something that's really painful, a really painful part of our history. Um, 
to the person that's done that their whole life, they're going to have to stop. Well, they don't have to. If they're going to choose to enter into that work of decolonizing, um, then they have to choose to stop and say, okay, like what is the truth here and what have I been believing? And that is deeply emotional work, right? Because you're, you may end up grieving a pastime that you've done with your family for generations. You know, when I've, I've shared about this particular thing and I've had people say to me, you know, I just realized why this is a problem and I'm from Atlanta. I've lived here my whole life and I just didn't know, you know, things like that, that when we choose to see the truth about something or to see the perspective um, of who it's about or who it's affecting and understand that it's going to be really hard to kind of root, root our own perspective out and, and the, the mistruth, like that's, that's deeply mental work. That's deeply spiritual work, I believe. And it's emotional and it's labor. And I think that that's where, you know, the work of solidarity comes in because if we're choosing to do these things, we have to do them together. You know, I have to do it from, from my point of view. And then the, the person on the other side of that has to do it from who they are and their own story. And we have to choose to come together in that. Um, does that make sense? No, it, it does. And I mean, uh, I think in general, just everybody should pull against the Braves for that very concept. Um, <laughs> on top, of, it doesn't help that I, you know, I'm, a, I'm offended by, by that action, but also I have a double hatred in the sense because I'm a lifelong New York Mets fan. And all we do, <laughs> all we ever do is seem to come up second to, to this team. You know, but no, no, it's it's it is amazing. You know, uh, it, you think about something that as common as uh, what we see in sports today. Like it still yeah. it still blows my mind that there is a team yeah. called the Washington Redskins, and yeah. and how that's still okay um, in our society. And, and and I think that's one of the challenges is that you know we've got this um, uh, this very uh, you know kind of large form of what capitalism looks like and in, in this that that you can make so much money off what is racially uh discriminatory and hate-filled and yet we are surprised that people still um say and do harmful things to others because of their race or their nationality or their uh, religious yeah. practices on a day-to-day -day thing and so I, so i wonder for you what would you do to encourage people um as they seek to maybe come to terms with some of, um, I guess the, the, where they have lived into inherent benefits of being of a particular race and, and beginning to understand um, that their history brought them to this place. And, and as you said, to, to de begin to decolonize, decolonize that within their own spiritual life and emotional life um, and how that can translate into their everyday living as they interact with others. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, and not just because I'm a writer, but I'm just really saying this in general, I think that reading the books of people who, whose life experiences are these things is really important. You know, buying, buying books from indigenous authors and reading them, um, indigenous authors that are like living today, you know, not like books from the 1960s, which read those too, but I'm just saying like, they're black indigenous people of color, disabled writers, you know, women, um, they're LGBTQ writers, like there are so many people who are writing their experiences um, and putting them in books so that people can understand, you know, and a book is, you know, words are such a powerful way to hear and understand the life of another person. Um, and I think that um, not just that, but then 
you know, relationship, like having a relationship with people who are different than you and actually practicing what listening means, you know? And um, I think that really those are, those are ways just to get started. I think that what happens a lot of the time is people get sort of frozen with fear. Like they don't know what to do. Like it's such a big task. Like they're like, what is decolonizing or what is dismantling systems of oppression? What does that mean? You know, and then they just get so scared sort of that they don't know what to do. They don't know where to start. And I try to tell people like, just start with one thing, just start with one book. You know, um, you don't have to have read you don't need to read like 50 books in one month, you know, to start getting it, like start wherever you can, you know, start with one, one friend that is safe for you to talk about this with, or, you know, um, but, you know, pay people for the work they've done. So if we write a book, you know, buy our book or, you know, um, support us in that way so that, so that we're also getting something from the work that we're putting out. And then the people who are learning are, getting you know they're they're being fed this this experience and being able to understand it so that they can change this podcast is presented to you by the center for congregational health at the center we believe god has called and empowered congregations to change the world for 25 years center consultants coaches and educators have been supporting congregations clergy and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life including training ministers to manage transition helping congregations work through polarizing conflict coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry and assisting congregations in discerning god's call to future missions and ministry center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. No one likes the problems happening in this world, I guess, unless you're a sadist. Um, The great Stephen will Colbert recently was talking about that he doesn't enjoy calling out the ridiculousness of Donald Trump and the GOP, yet he he is obligated to speak about these things. Mm-hmm. Since we're since we're facing such challenging times, where do I wonder where you find the courage and the grit to write and speak about injustices? And in turn, mm-hmm. how might you encourage someone who wants to find their voice to speak out? Yeah. Um, I think for me, um, you know, becoming a parent was really important for me in that journey of understanding that, you know, the idea of the future generations, like what are our children going to inherit? And not just people who have kids, what is my neighbor's kid or the school that's down the block? Like, what are they inheriting from us? You know, um, if we don't speak and if we don't, change something and if we don't tell the truth then they're just going to inherit the same problems and history is just going to repeat itself again you know and um so seeing like so many young people who are rising up and and telling the truth like that's something we should be paying attention to because it it means that that something needs to change you know um and so i think that listening to the kids um who are around us is really important because they're going to be the ones that have to carry all of this after we're gone, you know? Um, and I think that's a really important, um, fuel for a lot of us, for me, especially. Um, 
Yeah, and I think as, you know, for for finding your voice or understanding where you need to speak into, I think that's such a deeply personal thing too. And it is complicated because you have to do that in a way that doesn't speak over others or doesn't um, repress the voice of someone else, right? Like I hate the phrase, you know, I'm going to be a voice for the voiceless because that implies that there are people who don't have voices. And maybe yes, because of oppressive systems, it seems like that, but it's not true. You know, everyone has a voice and so many people have been speaking for a long time. They just haven't been heard. And so I think that, um, you know, the people who are um, starting to share their voices, it's important to do the work of equally listening and, and being a voice, you know, like we have to hear one another and then we have to find those spaces where we speak. And I, like I said earlier, I think it's where you just need to find one thing, like find one thing that is really important to you. I think it's unrealistic to be like, uh, you know, you have to be an activist for all these 20 different issues that are happening today. You know, um, I think that that puts so much pressure on us and really like makes us um, exhausted by the end of the day because we are spreading ourselves so thin across all these different things that there's nothing left. You know what I mean? Like, we need to find, you know, find the one thing or the two or three things maybe that really matter that you want to speak into that matter to you that are important to you, you know, and allow that to be sort of your, your realm of influence. Um, but I think that we, you know, with social media and with so many places like that, like we want to do it all, you know, like we want to be an activist for everything. And and speak out against Trump. And, you know, like you just keep piling things on. Um, and I think that we need to just choose the thing that we can do and do that thing, you know? It's it's easy for uh, once you feel like you have arrived and become aware of the world and oftentimes, um, I guess the privilege that many of us have have thrust upon us since since birth, you know, so some people are are born activists, others is thrust upon them, others it becomes an awakening experience and you kind of look back at to what what shaped and formed us to to come to this place. I wonder, uh, you know, what was your experience in becoming theologically aware to um, to the implications of Jesus' words and ministry for for the injustices that you see happening in the world and, and within your own local community? Yeah, um, you know, sort of um, fighting against injustice, if that's how I want to frame it, that's always been really important to me, you know, like, um, since I was young, that's been something that has just been a part of my narrative, is um, trying to understand why certain people throughout history are hurting or are oppressed or are um, not loved in, in the way that they need to be loved. And um, so that's always been um, just a part of me, but I do believe that that at the core of our humanness, that we are wired to um, understand that and care about it. I just think that it gets rooted out of us in these different ways, you know, and we're taught not to care um, or not to understand. Um, and I think in college for me, when I started actually, you know, deconstructing some of my faith and understanding that, well, if God is not this kind of white patriarchal guy with a 
gavel who's actually really mean and just wants to count my sins. You know, if that's not who God is, then who is Jesus actually? And is he this like tame, very quiet guy who doesn't really cause a fuss, <laughs> you know, or is he actually someone who dismantles and and disrupts, you know, empire? And um, I don't think that I even began viewing or understanding it that way until like after college, you know, mid twenties probably. Um, but once you see it that way, then it just unravels everything and you're really just left with so many more questions, you know? And I think that that's where so many people form community after they leave those systems, um, maybe systems of religion or American Christianity that is just, can be so toxic in those ways. I think that um, once we once we understand that and see it, you know, then we're all struggling to find community together and to ask these really big, hard questions that we weren't really allowed to ask when we were younger, you know, and um, and so for me, it I think it just shifted. So you know, the things I cared about in high school, I wrote songs about them and I shared them with my Christian friends, and I wanted to be you know, sort of a missionary. And that's the way I viewed it because that's the framework I was given to view it. And now I don't believe that way. And, um, and it's different. And, you know, part of some of the thing I'm actually dismantling is what I grew up with. And so that's, that does change things, but it still comes from a core of wanting to understand what wholeness is in the world and wanting to you know, dismantle the things that steal that from people and that do steal people's voices. Um, you know, so it's still like, it's still the same core of, of me. And I think that, that for a lot of us, like that core of who we are is still there. It's just, you know, what outside systems or ideologies or whatever has, has taken that from us and how do we reclaim it again? You want to play one of those songs for us right now? No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still write music? Um, it's been a little while. But I think that um, I kind of felt myself changing from music to books. You know, I think that like it was still words. It was still poetry. It was still these things. But I felt my you know life sort of shifting out of music toward um, words in a different way. And so... Yeah, I haven't written. I haven't written music in a few years. But, yeah. Well, let's let's go back to to the thing you were just speaking on um, before I interjected uh, something stupid. But um, <laughs> I, I, I want to make a. I'm going to say a safe generalization is that most of our listeners are advocates for justice in their communities, and I'm going to make an even safer generalization that the congregations that many of them serve are not in the same place they are theologically. So what would you say to ministers and lay leaders that want to lead their congregation and spiritual formation and becoming more aware of the gospel's implications for social and economic and political change? Mm, that's a great question. I don't know if I can answer it well. <laughs> um, I, um, are you saying that the, the lay leaders are, um, that their congregations are more conservative than they are? Is that what you mean? Yeah. I mean, 
so it's hard. I mean, if if you just start with maybe a base of our audience, which would primarily be, um, you know, people of uh, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. You know, mm-hmm. our, our denominations are pretty diverse. I mean, we we have far right. we have far left and and middle right when it comes to theological right. perspectives, and you know, many are still in that. You know, the the justice thing they fought for and established for were. Um, you know, women, uh, ordaining women into the ministry, which is still an important facet of, of what we do. But for many of our congregations, they have moved beyond that into seeing the greater implications of what's happening in the world. But many of our congregations are still in that same place. Like that was the issue they had to tackle and that's it. You know, so they're, yeah, mini- yeah, okay, gotcha. you know, yeah, yeah, their ministers are like, you know, they're in a different theological place and they want to, uh, you know, give their uh, congregations permission to deconstruct. But oftentimes, it, if you try to one-off it in a sermon, you find yourself more with angry people who no longer want you to serve as their minister and trust you and love yeah. you. Uh, and so that's kind of, uh, I guess, where I'm coming from. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a pastor. And, you know, I've been a worship leader at the church. And I've been in leadership roles at churches since I was young um, as a sort of worship leader. Um, So I've definitely seen some of these dynamics. And I also, what I'm finding, which some people may not agree with at all, but I'm finding that if you, if you do force change and kind of call these things out, like we need to, we need to tackle this right now, that that's what people will do is they'll shut down. They will shut down and they'll kick you out, you know? And it's like, um, and that's what's so hard about the truth telling and the prophetic is that we get kicked out of spaces because of what we do, you know? And so then it's the question of like, how long does change take? Um, and I think I've had conversations with others who are in organizations or at churches where it's like, um, you have to sort of like give an invitation to change and let that happen slowly. Like, I don't believe that decolonization, you know, the work of decolonizing isn't just like a switch that you flip on and then you're done, you know, or like, I hate the term woke because people just use it like, oh, I'm good. Like I've found out all the things, so I'm woke now, you know, and, and I think that we forget what a process it is and how, you know, the, um, what is it, two steps forward, three steps back of how the process of dismantling these things, like this is the foundation of America. Like we have built, we have built an entire nation based on these Christian foundations of empire, you know? And so to, to begin like dismantling them is going to take a really long time. And I don't, and it's frustrating because you want to be able to do the work and just get into it. But when people aren't ready to come with you, you know, um, I think it's a lot of frustration and a lot of patience to try to figure out what to do. And I think it's really important for leaders to have community with each other where they can hold each other in those spaces and help each other figure out how to do it. You know, how much do you say in a sermon where it doesn't turn people off, but it, it, it gives them an invitation to listen. Um, and I, I think that that's where our stories are so important in our experiences where we can actually, you know, I write books where I'm telling my stories because I want people to read them and understand that they're an invitation both to see their own story, but also to reckon with like, you know, if this is her story and this is mine and if this different, like what's wrong 
in that in-between space that we're not seeing each other, if that makes sense. Like, why am I not understanding the stories of the oppressed, but I'm understanding stories of white privilege, those kinds of things. And, and I think that, um, I think we should have more storytelling in our church spaces. I just, I think that would be really powerful um, to enter into those things more and allow that invitation of now that we know this, now that we've heard this experience, like what, what will we do with it? So I don't know if that's a good answer, <laughs> but that's my answer. It was, it was perfect. It was perfect. Uh, unrelated to all this, you do a lot of writing, obviously, on very difficult topics. Uh, if you were given permission to write on anything else in the world or something you love, what would you write about? Um, you know, I love um, decorating my house. So maybe I would write on hospitality and the importance of having a home that holds space for people. I don't really write on that often because it doesn't fit with what I write on, but that's something that I might write about if I had the space to do it. But I don't know if anyone would want to read about that. (laughs) (laughs) They'd be like, what's wrong with her? (laughs) What happened? Uh, No, I mean, I will say that (laughs) I've been sent recently from about five different publishers books on uh, food and hospitality and home. And, uh, so oh, yeah. I, I definitely think there's a, there's an audience for it. So, um, I know I'm not going to bring up too much on this new book that you're working on because ultimately we want to have you back on, um, the podcast and hopefully I haven't made too much of a fool of myself for you to say no, but do you want to tell us no. maybe the, the concept of the book and other ways that people can get connected with your writing? Yeah, um, so I have a book coming out next year, um, next May, and um, it's coming out with uh, Brazos Press, and it's called Native Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God, and um, it has some original poetry in it, and it's, like I said earlier, it's a book of my stories and experiences, but it's also kind of taking a look at Christianity and the ways that, um, you know, even through my stories, but also just in our history in America, the stories of uh, colonization and, you know, kind of Christianity mixed with empire, like how those have affected me as a person and how they have, um, you know, created some of the problems that we see today. And so it's, you know, it's a book of truth telling. And, um, but I also hope that it's a book that is an invitation to, you know, difficult conversations, but new conversations that I hope will, um, foster hope, you know, in a way and allow people to sort of dismantle some of these systems and ask really big questions of themselves and of their community. So yeah, so it comes out next May and um, a great way that people can get involved is actually to join my email newsletter. So I send a monthly newsletter and it's called um, Soul to Soul. And um, I kind of give updates and I I share like a personal essay and I give updates on where I'm speaking. I'm going to be doing a book tour next year. So um, people can join join that up through my website. You can just sign up there. And um, that's just a good way to stay connected if people want to continue to sort of hear about my work and stay connected on what I'm doing and when my book comes out. And now we obviously know there's a third book coming out on decoration and home and hospital. Yeah. <laughs> there, that's a good, yeah, that's a good one. Okay. <laughs> Only shopping at Goodwill. <laughs> that would be if you want to stay connected with Caitlin, visit CaitlinCurtis.com. Of course, follow her on social media. 
Uh, check out her work also on Sojourners.com. Caitlin, thank you for the courage and fortitude that you bring to your work. And thank you for giving a voice to vital things that we often fail to find the right words to address. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This podcast is supported by Living Earth Ceramics. Living Earth Ceramics has been on Etsy, bringing pottery to you for almost 10 years and has over 20 years of pottery experience. The focus is not only creating pieces that help bring lasting memories to your community and your life and your family through pottery, but also the support of charitable donations to organizations in need. Living Earth Ceramics created an amplifier in 2011 to help those with hearing loss, like the owner herself. Other items have included mugs, serving ware, custom plates and orders for newlyweds and holiday memories, gallery items, and custom requests for communal pieces to religious organizations. Living Earth Ceramics Shop on Etsy offers 10% discount to orders using the coupon code CBF Conversations. That's one word, CBF Conversations, with a free shipping now available to the continental United States. Living Earth Ceramics proudly supports our message of hope and love for all people. For more information, visit etsy.com backslash shop backslash Living Earth Ceramics. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.